0: Once upon a time, you as a nonprofit leader could just shrug your shoulders and say, you know, I'm clueless. I'm still dealing with donors who bounce $100 checks. Or crypto lives in the land of the 1% and I should only be so lucky to have a few donors who live in that land. Or my organization is just not big enough. Crypto is for huge nonprofits. You need some motivation to settle in for this conversation with my friend Pat Duffy from The Giving Block? Let me ask you this. Are you interested in inviting younger people to your organization? Do you see them as the future of your philanthropic pyramid? Here's some data that might interest you. The average age of a crypto donor in their 30s. Average income, $110,000. Average donation size, $10,500. I rest my case. Today's guest is a crypto guru and the founder of a business that wants nonprofits to raise massive amounts of money to solve the massive problems in our society. He and many others think the nonprofit sector is leaving money on the table that could be invested in the work we all know is greater than the resources you have to make it happen. I've talked about crypto before on my podcast, and I probably will again. It's that important. Last time, we spent time explaining it and helping you understand the size of the market to motivate you to learn more. Today, we'll go deeper. It's time to dig in to how to fundraise crypto. Greetings and welcome to Nonprofits are Messy. I'm your host, Joan Gary, founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, where we help smaller nonprofits thrive. I'm also a strategic advisor for executive directors and boards of larger nonprofits I'm a frequent keynote speaker, a blogger, and an author on all things leadership and management. You can learn more at joangary.com. I think of myself as a woman with a mission, to fuel the leadership of the nonprofit sector. My goal with each episode is to dig deep into an issue I know that nonprofit leaders are grappling with by finding just the right person to offer you advice and insights. Today is no exception. Pat Duffy is the co-founder of The Giving Block the leading crypto philanthropy platform that makes accepting and fundraising cryptocurrencies easy for nonprofits and empowers donors to give crypto to their favorite causes. Pat and his team have developed the largest crypto-giving platform for donors, raising over $100 million in crypto for nonprofits. Today, the Giving Block is helping thousands of the leading charities, schools, healthcare systems, and faith-based nonprofits fundraise crypto. Clients include Save the Children, the United Way Worldwide, and St. Jude. He is a media go-to on the topic of crypto philanthropy, media like Time, Newsweek, ABC, and of course, this podcast. He and his co-founder were also awarded Forbes 30 Under 30 in 2022 in the area of social impact for their good work at the giving block. Pat Duffy, greetings in Tampa, Florida from here in New Jersey. How you doing?
1: Quite an intro. I'm doing well. Yeah, okay. I'm doing awesome.
0: Well, how are you good. Doing? I'm good and I'm very happy to be here with you. So, before we dig into the topic, I always love folks to learn a little bit about how people found their way to what they do. So, how did you find your way to being this kind of nonprofit crypto guru? Are you a crypto guy who saw the opportunity nonprofits were missing? Are you a nonprofit guy who saw the missed opportunity and filled the gap? Tell us.
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I'm not a, inherently, I guess, from background, not a nonprofit guy or a crypto guy, which is kind of interesting. I have a poli-sci degree, so I came Uh out of school with reckless lack of uh, direction, I would say. So I ended up in the pharmaceutical sector. I, I worked on Capitol Hill. Didn't realize even until going into it that it's like so much bigger of a lobbying power even than energy or defense. Like Healthcare is by far... The biggest. So, like the the level of influence there and then how high powered the individuals were was pretty cool. But the work they were doing was working with nonprofits on the Hill. So, I worked in an alliance development arm. So, all that meant is like anytime there's a bill that's going to hurt pharma companies, bottom lines, they look to see if it's going to hurt patient access. And then they partner with those uh, voluntary health associations, like American Cancers and stuff like that. So, we ended up working on ultimately generating bills and sign on letters that were focused on protecting the interests of the sector. Ended up leaving that area pretty quickly. The, the opioid crisis broke out right as I was coming out of school. So I was uh-huh. like, this seems so interesting and cool. And then that happened. And it was like, then they were just like tracking lawsuits and being like, let's make that go away. And I was like, this is different. The, the innovation thing was fun for a second, but now I get it. Not necessarily good to have that much right. power and leverage it that way. Yep. So me and a bunch of consultants ended up leaving the pharmaceutical sector. I ended up at a nonprofit that myself and another pharma consultant moved to. They hired him to be CEO of the Lupus Foundation. And then I came in as an integration director. We both were just kind of like figuring out how to run a nonprofit really quickly and really just enjoyed the the fundraising strategy. So from that standpoint, just figured out like they're not Innovating, and then you see internally there is no incentive really to do that. You see from like a CEO and a board standpoint, there's a lot of risk if you lose half your budget for a year. Yep. <laughs> um, but if you triple the size of the org, nothing really happens for you from like an individual standpoint. I understand that like the mission is important, but there's only so much upside, diminishing return versus the for-profit sector. So you saw that really quickly. Like the level of fear around risk for people to try new things or experiment with tech was pretty high. And then the level of interest in doing something explorative or you know a 10-year exponential growth- type project that would take some risk and some overhead was just not there. and that seemed to be pretty universal for the sector, but got into trading crypto. same time was my first year in the nonprofit sector, tried to get our nonprofits to take it and just figured out really quickly that one nonprofits didn't have good ways of taking it in general. So they were pretty afraid to touch it because there wasn't any universal systems or best practices. And then the other piece was the nonprofits who were taking it never asked for it at all, which we quickly found out was also true for stocks, which is kind of compelling. Like they don't ask donors for assets, despite the fact that it's exponentially more tax efficient than giving cash. So that seemed like those were the two areas for us, build technology for it. And then also actively build kind of a fundraising strategy arm to just keep tapping clients on the shoulder being like, just tell people you take this stuff at the very least. And then actively fundraising it directly can, can also be effective as well. And over the last few years, that's proven to be the case so far.
0: So two questions mm-hmm. just on, on what you just said. Question number one is there are those folks and seemingly many of them who don't find fundraising fascinating. And fundraising strategy is something I believe you said you found, you were really into it. You found it fascinating. Maybe you could share why. So so some people who are trying to figure out how to engage more people in doing that work could share some of your good thoughts.
1: Yeah, there's kind of some macro stuff and then some more tactical components. On the macro, I found the, which a lot of people do in the sector, like the overhead myth dynamic to be pretty interesting. And then how many nonprofits were and are constantly sitting in this, like quicksand, where it's just like once one of the competitors starts playing with that fire, then everyone has to start playing with, like you, you, you end up in this trap where my nonprofit, when I was at it was very, there was a, a competitor, uh, Lupus nonprofit that began doing the 100% of your dollars go to research, got like one big picture behind the scenes donor to cover all the overhead. It's not like the overhead doesn't exist, but they were arguing every time you give a dollar, 100% goes to research. And you just look at things like, if you understand kind of how the pharmaceutical sector works, like the FDA clinical approval pathways, where just like you only have a handful of biomarkers for a lot of less popular diseases, where just uh-huh. you need to actually get the FDA to agree that certain things will lead to an approval or not, which takes people sitting at desks and going to, to argue for it. You need to go to Capitol Hill and argue for more NIH funding, you need to build Patient registries and databases that you can talk to as a patient group that like pharma companies can't do because of laws and regulations, where you can yeah. aggregate these people and get more people of color into clinical trials so the drugs actually work for them biologically. There was all these things we were working on. And when you had, you know, a billionaire who's looking at where to put money, I just saw our nonprofit and other nonprofits instead of saying, you're wrong. You don't want all of your money going to a researcher. That's one part of a multifaceted like spectrum of things that needs to be happening. And I'll tell you why if you give us money, we use it more effectively because it's more complicated than you think. They didn't feel like doing that. There's again, a lot of risk to do that versus like just playing the game that seems like it's working. So I found that just really compelling, just nonprofits not arguing around that. And then the lack of competitive language where I think nonprofits are afraid to talk about how severe their problems are because it sounds negative and they don't want to paint people too much as victims or or graphic imagery, which is like a reasonable moral consideration. But I think a lot of nonprofits are too afraid to point about like how severe an issue might be. Mm -hmm. I also think that leads them to say, this organization that we're competing against, we don't compete With organizations, we just talk about ourselves versus being willing to point out like they're using money for this. I don't think that works as well. Like I I think it's important for donors to be made aware of that and it's good to inform them. I think you end up having less informed donors and less efficient funding models because they're afraid to talk about whether or not they're doing something better than someone else. All of the, uh, I guess in short, you want to look kind and nice and efficient over impactful and thoughtful and aggressive Toward like the issue, there's this like general dance that's happening that I found really compelling versus like you would never tell Apple, hey, 100 percent of this dollar better go into the laptop you're manufacturing. If someone sits at a desk and tries to make this thing work better, I'm going to tell you you're being inefficient. I I, I find all of that just compelling overall.
0: Interesting. So I have a different and maybe a different conversation for us someday about whether an organization in your sector is competitive or not. I actually am not a big fan of the word co- competition, but not because I'm nice, e- even though I'm generally nice, that I think of, you know, so I was an L- I ran an LGBT organization for a long time, and there are many LGBT organizations, and they all kind of do different things. And so <coughs> I t- tended to talk about organizations as part as sort of instruments in an orchestra, that it took more than just a single organization that did a single thing to solve problem X. And in this case, it's, you know, hearts and minds about LGBT people, but it, it is interesting. And there is a niceness issue in the sector. I will give you that for sure. Risk. That's, I guess, my other question about risk, and then we'll get, that'll be a good segue to crypto, I guess. Uh, I talk about this quite a lot, right? You have organizations that are Build with people who are determined to make things different, to make things better, to change. They're change agents. How could a change agent be risk averse? Where, where do you think that's coming from, just based on your experience?
1: That's exactly right. I love the way you're framing it. Like, if you actually care about making a change, how can you be risk averse? Because that yeah. is the biggest risk, right? For any nonprofit, it's just not scaling solutions fast enough. Nonprofits are stuck on a Horrific, I think, annual budget model. I, mm-hmm. I would love to see it change to multi year reporting just to allow nonprofits to think smart more long term. But like you would never tell a parent, right? Like every dollar that comes in this year, you better spend it on your kid or you're not taking care of your kid properly. That would be an absurd thing to say to anyone in any other sector. But nonprofits, the biggest risk, of course, for all of these issues is like kids are going to need food next year too. And they get less of it because nonprofits think year to year, because they don't put away money for a rainy day. They don't spend money on experimental things that can 10x their impact, even though some of the time that's not going to work. Other sectors and other technologies have advanced a lot faster because they take risk. That's just how it works. That works in any other technology, any other sector, any type of investment model, risk equals upside. So the number one reason kids are going to not get as much medicine from nonprofits next year as possible is because they're not taking risks, and they're not like experimenting with ideas that have higher upside potential. Why does it happen? I think because of, again, like annual budgets is a big thing. The incentive model, I think, is pretty bad for nonprofits in general, in terms of like staff in any particular position. What are the? What is the upside if you take risk for you as an individual? If it really pays off, how much different is your life going to look? How much different is the organization's impact going to be perceived by their board? It's like, things don't really change enough. There's not that unlimited, uncapped upside when you look at entrepreneurship, like in other areas. And I think that's a negative. I think a lot of this comes down to the puritanical complex, again, down to like niceness in the sector, where it's just like, if I spent my whole day running around collecting money for the homeless, and then I gave them 80% of it, put 20% of my pocket, people would say there's an ugliness to that, even if I'm raising a 100 times more. It's like, you shouldn't benefit from helping people. And then that means almost every person on the planet goes, okay, I'll make my money pumping CO2 into the atmosphere and then I'll give some of this away at the end because at least when I'm giving it away, I'm not taking a percentage of it. Um, Commission-based fundraising being pushed to the side. And then also like, if you opened up a newspaper and you were like, okay, American Cancer Society hired the CEO of Exxon to take over for $14 million a year, people would say that stinks. To which I'd say, oh, the most high-powered, ambitious individuals on the planet are now running organizations trying to cure cancer and people view that as a problem. I'd say that's the main reason that people are so risk averse because there's no payoff to taking those risks. And fundamentally, people don't want to be seen as getting ahead in the nonprofit sector at all. They want to be seen as maintaining their position, both in terms of not growing their overhead or growing themselves individually through ambition. It just seems to be a, a cultural issue.
0: I I think it's a very, very interesting framing, actually, and I appreciate that. Yeah, just hearing you talk about a high-powered CEO going in to try to cure cancer, what would be wrong with that, right? The other thing, just real quickly, is boards uh, in the structure of nonprofits today, boards, uh, I think, see themselves as risk managers, that their job is to make sure nothing goes wrong. Their job is to protect and defend The sacred donor dollar, right? And God forbid, we should try something new. We should pilot something and it might not work. But maybe we actually failed forward and learned something from that that we then tweak that becomes this game-changing program. It is not how boards think, and therefore, I believe that staff follow that risk aversion. And I just think it is like the ultimate irony in a sector that is all about taking risks and changing and all of that. So with that said, let's talk about crypto. (laughs) (laughs) Because that's a pretty good canvas to work on here. And so let's start at the beginning. A lot of people are listening who need the sort of the uh, the 101 on this. So I'm going to ask you to pretend that I'm 10, which if we knew each other better, you'd knew that was not a stretch. And I'll stop if I get confused. Talk to me about what crypto is. So it's 101.
1: Yeah. There's what it is and then also what it is to nonprofits. I'll just quickly say for what it is to nonprofits, it's Please. An asset you receive that should be immediately liquidated and then it's US dollars that go to emission a lot of nonprofits are very confused about how they interface with it price volatility which ones to take which not to take where do you store it like there's all these things but it's like none of this applies to a nonprofit that we can talk about the tech because you should know how it works but that's the main thing we always point out like nonprofits think about crypto as a mode of investment or a technology that gets used or like how blockchains work. And it's just like all of those things are true if you're investing, but nonprofits aren't investing unless you want to. But that's a very separate consideration and exceedingly rare. Why people buy it, when they buy it, which ones they buy has absolutely no bearing on a nonprofit. You're opening a door for people who decide to make those investment decisions and giving them a tax-optimized way to give to you. Uh, in terms of why it's happening to begin with, because I know a lot, of, a lot of nonprofits think it's like, A fad or or vaporware. They don't fundamentally understand what it does. The main thing that's different about cryptocurrency and blockchains and NFTs when you hear about this is it's the first form of virtual asset that's actually real. So it's almost like the opposite of what people think about it. I used to think the opposite too. I just actually met up with a buddy this week that I talked out of crypto in like 2017 after listening to a podcast right before I got into it. And then they found out years later because I don't talk to him a lot. He's like, what the hell? You started like a crypto <laughs> company? I was like, yeah, I was wrong. I, I messed up. I read the white paper. But it's it's real in the way that like dollars aren't. So like dollars use something called fractional reserve banking. So like a bank can take in a thousand of your dollars and then say it's sitting in an account, but it's not. And then they loan it out somewhere else. And then that bank says, okay, we have the thousand dollars. Now they both say it's there, but it's not. Like it's only in one place at a time, but it's said to be in multiple places. And uh-huh. a bank only needs a very small percentage of the actual money there. like almost." no money actually exists it's pretend it's it's moving things on spreadsheets which is also why banks pay hundreds of billions of dollars in fines every decade for cooking the books and laundering money because you can pretend it's somewhere when it's not which is also with the ftx thing which we'll get into like that has nothing to do with crypto that has to do with banking they off the blockchain they you know loaned out crypto and then borrowed actual dollars which is not in that network and through like classic banking tricks we're able to pretend It was backed when it wasn't. It's like if you have a unit of cryptocurrency or if you have an NFT, the main thing that it does is since the origin of Bitcoin like 12 years ago, not a single transaction record has ever been changed. And no one has ever laid claim to the same unit of crypto at the same time. If it's sitting in a wallet or if you send it somewhere, you can't change those transaction records. You'd have to be in control of every computer or more than 51% of those computers that are all involved in the network. You have to get them all to agree simultaneously to something that isn't true, which is virtually impossible. So It's a permanent, unchangeable transaction record in a way that like every other virtual asset is not. So when you have an NFT, the reason people buy these art uh, pieces online for $66 million, people go, what? It's just a picture. I can take a picture of it. It's the same reason if you own the original Mona Lisa, you can 100% verify that with experts. This is the first time you've been able to do that virtually. It solves something called a double spend problem where you can multiply mp3s or torrent things and no one can really identify from the metadata what is the original or which one is real you can't add fake bitcoin to a network you can't pretend it's in your wallet when it's not you can't say you didn't send it anywhere it's solved for that problem it's the only type of asset that has so people view that as pretty interesting and it produces a lot of interesting use cases as a result people buy into different cryptos usually like you would almost buy into a stock of the idea of cell phones replacing landlines. If you believe it's a technology that works more efficiently, you're kind of betting on the upside as it gets adopted.
0: So just in case there's someone listening who has this question, I'm going to ask it. Is Bitcoin a form of cryptocurrency? Like the Mm -hmm. distinction between the word Bitcoin and the word cryptocurrency and Bitcoin is a kind of cryptocurrency. Are there other kinds?
1: Yeah. Like uh, it's almost like Civic, Honda, automobile. There's sort of like, you can have different types of automobiles that all use engines where you can have like a car, a truck, et cetera. There's different like blockchain use cases. One of these use cases, cryptocurrencies, which is like, instead of you sending a patient uh, record on a blockchain, or instead of you having a, a visual piece of art on a blockchain, what you have is a value asset, something in between stock and gold and money, or just you can transfer value directly. The first one was Bitcoin. And then since then, you know, there's thousands of different cryptos. Most of them do something different, but you also can just copy and paste this code and make like, pretty much you can just recreate Bitcoin because it's like open source stuff and then you can launch that. But most of the time, that's not helpful. Some people launch a new cryptocurrency and like a new cryptocurrency and they go talk to people who don't know how crypto works and they're like, isn't this great? And everyone's like, it is great. It's like, well, yeah, because that's Bitcoin. You're just recreating it. It would be like if people didn't know, you know, websites were a thing and you showed them one, they'd be like, this is amazing. How did you do that? It's like, well, these are... These already exist. So yeah, Bitcoin was the, the first one. And now Bitcoin, Ethereum are the, the top two.
0: Got it. So they're like brands almost, kind of. That's your Honda or your Cadillac?
1: Yeah, they're they're doing different things. I so it'd be sort of like, um, like Twitter versus Instagram. Facebook, mm-hmm. Instagram. Yeah, they're performing different functions, even though they can look somewhat similar. So like Bitcoin was meant to primarily be something between a currency and a store of value. So this value asset, you can put money in. And then Ethereum was designed to have a lot of that functionality, but also to let people build on it. So you're able to launch uh, the tokens on the same network, and then they can all interchange out of this mainstream one. So people are able to experiment with new creations. It's more to be built upon. And then they've been trying to you know update different cryptos to make it easier to build on to, to let people kind of experiment. There's like layer one and layer two stuff. Also, again, I have a political science degree. Uh-huh. So that's about, that's about as far as I go.
0: Okay, well, that is, <laughs> that's pretty far though. I mean, and so tell me if I run a nonprofit, do I need, I, I'm not asking you this question. I'm asking if I need to ask this question. You have used the phrase blockchain quite a few times, way beyond my 10-year-old capacity. As it relates to crypto, Do I actually, as a nonprofit leader or a fundraiser, do I need to really understand how the thing works?
1: No, it would be, this is, I think, a funny thing with crypto and all technologies. People will get on the mountaintop and yell about how everyone needs education and to understand it. And you don't want to sound condescending by saying people don't, but people demand that it's true and that everyone says education. I think they confuse education on like the fundamental tech with education on how to interface with it, uh-huh. and then eventually people just let it go. So like,
0: I think like, we're going to be. Oh, in this I know. For how a- about this one? It gets saved to the cloud.
1: Yeah, what does that mean?
0: I have no. What is Wi-Fi? I, right. What is
1: Bluetooth? It's a microwave. Work.
0: And we now just take it for granted, oh, don't worry if your laptop crashes, everything is saved to the cloud. And you were to say to somebody, what's the cloud? Probably 98% of people would say, I have no idea, but it's this thing, right? Anything.
1: I mean, how right. is light getting into light bulbs? Like no one really, I mean, kind of. Photography, you point a camera at something and the image comes into your television. It's like, how much do you? How much does any person really know about that? You know what I mean? If you talk to anyone about anything in their home and they're like, this crypto stuff i don't get it it's like you absolutely know a lot more about crypto than practically anything else you're interfacing with you just demand i think an unnecessary amount of knowledge about new things until you decide enough people are using the technology where you're not so afraid that you demand unnecessary information so like i know that sounds like a very unsatisfying answer but like think about any even like combustion right like pistons in a car it's like if you went in to buy a car and they were talking about pistons and how they fire and like how all the parts of the engine were like you'd be like this is not where we should be starting at all how how is this even helping me make fundamentally valuable decisions it's like it's not but with crypto we have to do a lot of these conversations because people go i refuse to move forward until i'm a mechanical engineer and it's like <laughs> well You can't. I mean, you can if you really want to, but that's, you, you end up with these people who are like so unbelievably curious that they know too much. And then every presentation is like how blocks get added to a blockchain and people furiously scribble in a notebook or they try to figure out like international regulations around what cryptos are accepted where and why that's allowed and like money transmitter licenses. It's just like. You're not doing this with anything else. You're using Fidelity because they know which stock should be listed, and they have a system for exchanging them. It's like that's what we use Gemini for. The only difference for like Gemini versus an FTX when nonprofits are like trying to evaluate risk, how do I not end up in that situation? it's a trust company. So like the currencies that are going into and out of Gemini are actually backed dollar for dollar. Like you, you have to be to uh, use to do that to be a trust company, and someone like an FTX isn't. That's where like new regulations become positive and helpful. But yeah. so you have to like trust the people that you're interfacing with to solve these problems for you. And then it's also, again, only a consideration if you are buying cryptocurrency, if you're holding cryptocurrency, totally separate considerations from what a nonprofit is doing normally, which is on our platform, receiving crypto, having it immediately within seconds, 24 hours a day, converted to US dollars that are FDIC insured and then pushed into a bank account that's connected via ACH. Anything that happens beyond that is really the responsibility of technological innovators, yep. the financial sector, and then the individuals who decide to invest and participate.
0: So let's do some myth busting.
1: Okay.
0: Um, seeing that I am not going to get my master's degree in the science of cryptocurrency and that I don't need it to accept it at my nonprofit. Here's a lightning round of myths. Let's start with number one. Crypto is too risky. If I accept it, it could dive bomb in value and I will be screwed.
1: That is true if you're accepting it role. So again, that's why vendors are, it'd be very similar to like accepting money via cash, right? Like if people are just bringing you bags of money, it's like, I'll have no idea where that's been. It's like, well, yeah, but money can work better, right? You can work with the bank. It can be connected. Separately, you can have money transmitter licenses and NASDAQ market surveillance. It's just like, if you're accepting crypto through us, then that's not an issue. Again, like all cryptocurrency immediately sells for US dollars within seconds, and you just have FDIC-insured cash. So any downside potential of cryptocurrency is a choice when it comes to risk. Some nonprofits do decide to hold it. We can't tell you, you absolutely aren't allowed to do that. But that's just a completely unnecessary risk that a very small percentage of nonprofits decide to take on.
0: Okay, try this one. Only rich white men use crypto and I want to diversify my donor base. Yeah,
1: is crypto the best way to diversify on the basis of race? Like not necessarily, like there's better ways to target communities and make space for people for sure. Is it more diverse than traditional finance? Absolutely, by dramatic margins. It just kind of reflects the people who decide to get in. The thing I would say about crypto to people also is it's just like there is no institutional history here with crypto like it's a brand new thing so whoever has it are just the people who decide to get it you can definitely encourage more people from diverse backgrounds to get into it there are a lot of movements to do so like bitcoin and black america is a great book and there's people who are doing good work on it but no i mean there's nothing inherently based in kind of prejudice or gatekeeping that creates the the crypto racial makeup it's just who Gets into it at any point in time. You could encourage more, but it's at the very least a lot younger and more diverse than any traditional payments you're accepting. If you're accepting, you know, hundred thousand dollar wires, like, and you want to talk about like diversification of your donor base, it's like show me a donation method you're accepting stocks, for instance, where it looks any, you know, more diverse than, than cryptocurrency. I guess some modern payment apps, depending on which one, maybe something like Cash App. I would think would maybe be more diverse than crypto, but mm-hmm. yeah, no, it would, I think it would be a, a silly place to to take up that fight because you would have to eliminate obviously wires. You'd have to eliminate stock transfers. You'd have to eliminate acceptance from trusts or dafts. You couldn't work with family offices. You couldn't work right. with advisors. If you want to do that, then definitely.
0: Okay. So here's another one. I really don't have time to set up something that's really complicated. The market is still too, right, because I have to watch my overhead, see? The market is still too small, and the investment of time to set up to accept crypto may not pay off for me for quite some time.
1: Yeah, this is why we have a subscription model. Instead of making a, a free thing that nonprofits implement and set up on their own and say, we'll just save the money on our overhead and make it free for everybody, because like, we are... More concerned about the time component and then like the risk component of marketing it ineffectively or a nonprofit reaching out to their donor and being like, yeah, you can send your NFT to this dynamic wallet address and just set it on fire. The time is taken care of. That's the whole reason we exist. So you'll have it set up within 48 hours. Like once you just submit paperwork, we create a widget for nonprofits that connects to the actual crypto exchange account. And then that widget serves up. Uh, wallet addresses that donors send transactions to. Everything's automated from the receipt that gets generated to the actual transaction flow. ACH goes into a nonprofit account. Anytime in terms of implementation, is literally just filling out the app and then clicking paste with an iframe. So if you can add a YouTube video to a page on your website, you can take crypto with the giving block.
0: Interesting. The Nonprofit Leadership Lab is led by Joan Gary, and is the world's best online community for leaders of small nonprofits. Learn how to raise more money, build the board of your dreams, grow a large audience of supporters, and so much more. To learn more and request an invitation to become a member, please go to nonprofitleadershiplab.com slash podcast. That's nonprofitleadershiplab.com slash podcast. So actually, let's talk about your company, The Giving Block. So why you started it and sort of any more that you want to talk about in terms of how it works, who you work with, those kinds of things that would be important for people to know about your work.
1: Yeah. So like the, the reason we created it, we kind of touched on, mm-hmm. but we created it with an interesting model that our investors uh, were not necessarily excited about, uh, but we created like the least scalable Company in the nonprofit sector with like the least product market fit of all time. So, we were bringing cryptocurrency solutions, the most innovative technology to the nonprofit sector, who was the least interested in it at a time where there were like no solutions for a lot of for profit industries that were interested. We just didn't have a great idea, I guess, in those areas. So, it seemed like a very silly thing to do i don't know if you've ever seen the movie napoleon dynamite but we always talk about where he's like trying to get the llama to eat lasagna and he's (laughs) trying to fling the lasagna at it and it's like getting its head out of the way like that was the first two years of our company where we're like the tax incentive is here it's obvious people want to give this to you and they were like get it out of here i don't want it i'm like eat the food just come here like come here and take it so good why would you not so we had to do all of these unscalable things so we had to make it We had to do all of the work of the setup. We had to do all of the work of the internal navigation with a board and getting approval on it. We had to do all of the work of actively soliciting it and like doing our own fundraising. We added all of our nonprofits onto an aggregator. We turned it into a crowdfunding platform. We went to Giving Tuesday Foundation. We created Crypto Giving Tuesday as a through line campaign that we ran ourselves. We chased out match dollars. We started partnering with crypto companies getting dollars coming through, getting donors to give in one place. We created the crypto giving pledge and we got like Tony Hawk, the skateboarder and then like Rain Wilson from the office and people to start taking this. We had to create this community because the nonprofits weren't willing to do a lot of these things on their own. So rather mm-hmm. than just like giving nonprofits a tool and letting the chips fall where they may, we saw from our first, I'd say again, like dozen interviews with nonprofits who were accepting it, even the ones who took it, didn't get donations, and then believe the opportunity wasn't there, which I thought was interesting. Like they told no one, "You can give this way." Right. They waited for donations to arrive for no reason. When they didn't, they said the size of this opportunity is not there. So not only were they not fundraising it, but they now genuinely believe they explored the opportunity and that it wasn't there. And so we, we thought it wasn't there was there. like this. Right. There was this ins- insane level of risk in giving nonprofits this solution for free to accept crypto, having them put a donate crypto button on their site, and then getting such a high percentage of nonprofits to lose faith in the idea of there being an opportunity. Because when we worked with nonprofits actively to just ask their donors for this every once in a while, like they got really good revenue results, and it was like very easy. They didn't need our crypto campaigns and all this other stuff that they had to create on their own. They just plugged into the stuff we were doing, yeah. And they would just take their younger donors and be like, "Do you guys have this?" Because there's a pretty wild incentive to give this to us if you do. And they're like, well, a lot of us, yes, we do have this. How do we send it to you? Fantastic. You send it over here. They're like, this is, well, this is pretty good. This was a person who was a volunteer at a walks program. Turns out they have quite a bit of cryptocurrency. They're running an NFT fundraiser. Then you start doing the data, you're like, oh, 94% crypto users are millennials and Gen Zs. Almost 90% of millennial millionaires have crypto. It's like 300 million people are using cryptocurrency. Nonprofits are just Nonprofits looked at crypto, I think, the way the US looks at soccer, other than when World Cup is going on. They're like, it's a thing, but is it really? It's like, yeah, you're just hanging out with very different people. So we had to actively manufacture what was ultimately very minimal effort, but it took a client success team and a strategist slash consultant team and then an onboarding team to do the, the setups for the nonprofits. And then we needed a marketing team to build campaigns. So we needed partnerships to bring in match dollars. We created pretty much the equivalent of a everything it would take at nonprofits to get this program going, and then staple that in instead of just being a technical solution provider. Because when nonprofits don't ask for assets, they don't get them. Like The same thing that we realized was happening with stocks. And then that's we launched stocks a few months ago. And already of the 2,000 nonprofits we have, over 1,000 are using that solution because they worked with us on, on crypto. crypto. And they realized, hey, if we actively solicit We can probably, one, get people to actually give it who are younger. And then two, we have all these older donors who give through DAFs and all these complex vehicles where sometimes we don't even see that money or they're splitting it up among other groups. It's like, I want to own this. I want their data going into a CRM. I want to be able to steward them on stocks. It's like, yeah, same thing that applies to crypto applies to stock. We want direct ownership of that. So that was pretty much the active solicitation and building this gigantic engine. We now have over 80 people on my team who do a lot of this work. A small percentage of that is the the technical developers. We we build the solutions that make it easy for nonprofits to accept it and streamline this process.
0: But that's not the hard part when yeah. it came to nonprofits, was it?
1: That's right. Yeah, the the active fundraising piece, and then also some hitting of the brakes because a lot of people who really wanted to get into crypto were like, we want to create our own cryptocurrency. We want to mint NFTs. We want to give NFTs the donors when they give. We want to create a DAO. We want to it's just like, hey, relax. We're just <laughs> going to ask your donors. If they want to send you bitcoin and they're like this is boring it's like we're gonna search engine optimize your donation page and they're like this is lame but now if you google you know donate bitcoin kids or donate crypto animals what you'll find is even before our platform comes up which is the top giving location where people go to give crypto you'll get four or five of our nonprofits who rank above us for practically everything because we manufactured seo content client by client because we knew we would never be able to own positions on the internet around children or animals or direct relief in a way that clients would. So a lot of those active things that we do, I would say, are the kind of the heart of why, be, despite the fact we were the only ones doing crypto on a paid model while everyone else was giving it away for free, we were able to carve out like by far the largest percentage of the the sector.
0: So your business model, you said it was a subscription. Mm-hmm. And so, so tell me, so if I'm a nonprofit and I engage with you, I pay a subscription for the app and for the support that you're talking about as well?
1: Yeah. So it's the from the technical solution that the nonprofit's using to the support engine for themselves and then their donors. And then the largest, I guess, extension of the actual process of acceptance is something we call institutional slash private client services. That's for all of the fringe cases and the large transactions. So very similar to what we do on stocks. We have a stock product, but there are a lot of Nonprofit startups that have stock products—they use a stock product to replace the institutional flow that a lot of older donors still want, or every big donor wants. They don't want to just click buttons and send a billion dollars. That hybrid part of what we do is actually a big piece of it too. We picked up Mike McLean from Fidelity Charitable, billions of dollars in donation volume. He built the crypto arm on top of all the stock stuff he was doing, Uh but they did three hundred thirty million in crypto alone last year. And then we picked him up to build the institutional arm. So the subscription covers that from a technical standpoint and then again we run the campaigns our knowledge base is by far the most comprehensive like active asset solicitation resource ecosystem we run webinars relentlessly and then we run these these campaigns on top of working with nonprofits if they want kind of larger subscriptions Mm -hmm. uh, to build active crypto and stock solicitation programs kind of year over year growth of unlocking uh, asset-based donors and their existing donor base and if they want to go out and hunt using these tools to earn that new donors. Those are kind of the the two arms of the strategy.
0: Okay, so you've made this case, and now let's assume that I run a small to mid-sized nonprofit, right? I'm Mm -hmm. not St. Jude's. I'm not the United Way. If I run a million dollar or two million or three million dollar organization, is it worth the investment to fundraise crypto? And are you the only game in town? Like, how do I get started? I've I've, I've, I've listened to this podcast and i'm like oh okay i could i could tell people i accept crypto now what
1: yeah so this is the like the unfortunate gray area it kind of comes down to you when you're at that size so like the two questions we ask through like our sales journey is it's always like okay are you good at the internet and are you good at fundraising in some fundamental sense because if you're not or at the very least not interested in those things like this won't be helpful because you could have a if you if you're gonna get a free solution, you can pop like a, a donate crypto button that you can sit on your site and you don't intend on trying to solicit or grow it into a revenue channel, then this would be a waste. And then the other side of it is like if you're not good at innovation in general, you just kind of like wait until the last second and then pour gasoline on a fire for two months, totally distract everybody and then turn things off. Cause there are nonprofits that are like that where it's just like it's not that they're not innovative. They just don't Consistently do this to where they're good at implementation. Like, if you're going to just try to make a million dollars on crypto in two months and then say this stinks and like turn it off, like, then it's yeah, you don't want to, you need to know yourself. But if you're a a measured organization, you have a stewardship model in some fundamental sense, you have a, a CRM that you tap into and like know how to talk to your donors and engage them, and you're using the internet, you're not like opening a Twitter account for the first time to try to meet crypto users then yeah, it's it's a, it's a super useful tool. And it's a great revenue channel. It makes you better at things you need to be good at. You got to be on Twitter at some point. You need to understand how to use Reddit. You should be fundraising using streaming sometimes. Like You, you can't do all of this, maybe even in your first year with crypto, but it's going to put you in a position if you care about earning younger donors and then soliciting assets, stocks, crypto, et cetera, from your donor base. You need crypto as a part of that strategy to, to grow in that area. If you're looking for a scratch-off lottery ticket, which some, especially not smaller nonprofits, are. Then it's a not only will you not see the revenue result you're looking for, but then we have an annual subscription, so you have a, a sunk cost risk. <laughs> but I, I think again, the bigger risk with nonprofits in general, not every nonprofit, like it, it definitely isn't for everybody. If you don't have a mobile optimized site, maybe a little early for Bitcoin. But I think the biggest risk with crypto or with stocks, or with everything else, is like thinking you have it solved for when you don't. Like the nonprofits who have like brokerage instructions on a page, and they're like, we're taking. Stocks or people who have a donate crypto button sitting somewhere right now, and they're like, "This is going to work out." It's like it won't. So, like if you're generally interested in the opportunity, like I strongly recommend our platform. We have like really high retention as a company, and we work really hard because of the subscription to make sure each nonprofit is successful. If you're going to be taking that jump, I would say do it with us. But I definitely don't think every nonprofit, especially small nonprofits needs to take it. Like if you make a list of things like, again, mobile optimizing your site, taking basic things like Apple Pay, Zelle, Venmo, like there are certain things you should be doing first. If you try to jump the line and do the flashiest thing, like feel that and recognize maybe it's your your step two or or three potentially.
0: I love that actually, Pat. I think there are two things you said there that are worth amplifying. One is if you want to go there, there are things you'll have to do first. If you're not doing those things then you're then you've taken too you're leaping too far, right? The second thing is what you said I don't know 15 minutes ago about annual budgets. If you are an organization that thinks strategically about the future, not just in terms of your impact but your sources of revenue, Right, five years from now. I mean, you've already made a compelling argument for the universe of people who will give via crypto, but that number's not going to get smaller.
1: No, it grows. It's grown a lot this year as the price is absolutely dumped over the last. We've been doing this through five or six uh, downward price movements, like big corrections in the industry, and the user base has grown significantly every single time like there's way more crypto users now than there were when bitcoin was at 60 something thousand dollars a unit by like a dramatic margin it's not going anywhere
0: so there's a big headline here because i have heard people say i need it to be a more mature market before i really really think about how i want to um, start to accept crypto you shouldn't wait and even if you choose to wait, you have to wait for the right reasons, which is not about the maturity of that market, but potentially about your own maturity as a tech-savvy organization that is using the internet in all the right ways. Did I hear you say all of those things?
1: That's dead on. And, and just to piggyback on that, it's very nonprofits think about, especially smaller, mid-sized nonprofits, think about these trends in the same unhealthy way that investors do. Like, Yeah. If you bought bitcoin two or three years ago you're up a lot right now like people forget about like how long it's been around bitcoin right now is the best performing asset class of the last decade by a, an absurd margin that's following a correction from mobile seventy thousand dollars a unit to like 17k today people have no context of like if something if i give you a dollar and it goes up 10x and then it cuts in half you have five times your money like people don't understand. like over time People make the investment mistake of like trying to buy things only when they think it's well adopted and popular. You're usually in a bubble. One, it's a crowded area. It's there's everyone is overexposed. It's probably overvalued at that time, and you're trying to get for a nonprofit in this case really good at something that everyone else has been putting time into, like it, it, like the marathons tomorrow. And you're just like charging up toward the finish line, you know, with a half eaten apple being like, this is going to go well. Like that's how nonprofits, to your point, can approach innovation where they're like, I need to wait until every blue chip is doing this and it's well baked into everything. And every donor with this type of asset has already found their giving channel. And now I'll get into this, right? And I'm going to be just posting about Bitcoin as two words on Twitter with spaces and hyphens and just like blasting into the void with no audience and being like, where's the money? And then you'll get a down market again and be like, what happened there? It's like, well, what do you expect to happen? Like when you look at our Save the Children's, United Way, St. Jude, American Cancer Society, some of our big blue chips, they've been taking crypto since like 2013, 2014. Like these these seven-figure annual revenue channels. It's like, they're fundraising now. They're stewarding now. They're getting people to take the crypto giving pledge and pegging it to, hey, when Bitcoin gets back to 30K unit, 40K unit, can you commit to this level of gift? And they're locking these things in. And there's going to be piles... Of money that results from that. And small nonprofits can be doing that too. Like You don't want to wait to get good at something until everything's already poured in the same way you don't want to wait to buy an asset until everyone's already bought it. Like it, You're usually at the top of a bubble and you're going to get hurt. So if, if you're going to do it, do it slow and steady and over time. You don't do crypto for a year. You do it for multiple years. If you don't see yourself doing that, if you feel like you're going to poke into something and back out, you're probably doing the wrong thing first.
0: There's also a big fat proof of concept, too, in what you just said, right? If I go to my board and I say, we are going to be missing a huge opportunity if we don't invest in those things that will prepare us to fundraise crypto. and These are the things we need to do next year so that we can then invest with, whether it's a company like yours or something else, in order to begin to actively fundraise crypto. And your board sits there like you're talking about going to the moon, right? And you say, Mm -hmm. here's a list of nonprofit organizations that accept crypto. And you see that list and you're like, oh, so the blue chip nonprofits, these big, you know, these large household names are taking it. And they're not taking it because they can take more risk right? They're taking it because they see the opportunity to drive more dollars to their organization, right?
1: 100%. Like A, a good metric on this also, like it's now almost 20% of dollars in the nonprofit sector go to a client of the giving block, and we only have 2,000 clients. So the vast majority of our clients are small and mid-sized, like of the probably 1,500 out of the 2,000, but we have 200 clients with nine or 10-figure annual revenue. Like we have hundreds of uh, like hundreds of blue. When you just think about like, okay, PETA, world. Like if you just go down the list of like, what's a big organization, they're all doing crypto and they're doing it for multiple years. And they don't like turn it off when it's a bear market. They didn't flood in at the end of last year. Like they've been in this for a long time. And there's a reason for it because it's like an active revenue show. Now, the way they fundraise is obviously different like they're going to keep eating up donor demographic and it's not going to be any easier to carve into any other area like there's nothing less crowded despite i know that's kind of scary it's like oh we're too late now everyone either thinks you're too early or too late when we talk about crypto but it's not going to get any less crowded of course so when you're a small organization you want to get ahead of something and having conversations looking for differentiators trying to get younger people to be interested in you to begin with there's certain things you just got to start dipping your toe into like there's just certain if you're not taking crypto if you don't know how to do streaming if you're not on most social platforms if you're still trying to do phone calls to direct mail like all of these things are still part of what you are as a person but like if you're not diversifying into that like you're becoming less and less relevant and then you're right if you try to do it all at once you're going to hit you know 150 speed shakes and you're going to blow off the road and go oh i guess innovation is scary it's like you got to be meeting about it every week and moving pieces around and then slowly trying one thing and adding building blocks. Like If you're not doing something like this all the time, it's a muscle group. It's going to atrophy and you're going to be really bad at it when you absolutely need it. And that's what's going to tank you. It's it's almost like the lack of innovation is bad, but then it's also like the rapid explosive burst of innovation, like during COVID when nonprofits went digital. Like That scared me. I didn't like that. Everyone was like, that's good. And I'm like, "I." there's a lot of nonprofits buying software moving their galas, like where are just like all at once. Think, like, are we sure this is the move? For some of them, it was great, I'm sure. But like a lot of nonprofits, I'm sure, got burned. They bought 15 things they didn't need. And they're trying to put the pieces back together because they didn't have a plan, you know?
0: couple more questions. How do I find donors who are in the crypto space?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. It looks different for every organization. So the first thing to look at is like, how do you fundraise? in general. So there are some nonprofits that we work with that have like a YouTube channel that's very popular. You start there. You make it clear to those people that you take crypto. If you have a big social following, you start there. If you have a really big mailing list, you start there. Email, whatever it might be. You have to make it clear to your existing donor base, no matter their age. We always say it's like a a lot of our biggest donations come from 70, 80-year-old investment fund managers or, or... hedge fund managers and stuff like that. Like you, you just got to make it clear. You don't have to run crypto fundraisers to everyone who's in their seventies and eighties, but like, they better know you take it. So like, that's the first thing, making it present in the areas where you already have exposure. And then the second piece is figuring out like, when it comes to expansion strategies, what are the things that are going to work for you fundamentally based on who you are and how you fundraise. So Arrayantan Outreach last year was like a $500,000 a year org. They're now uh-huh. like a 1.5. Uh-huh. Million dollar year org, they tripled their budget by just DMing NFT artists and being like, there were a lot of ape related NFT projects, and they were like, we want to be like a recipient. Can we partner with you? And you can it, you can raise money for us just by giving us percentage of like downstream fees when these sell, or we can do an auction together, and like one of the drops you do benefits a nonprofit. They love that, and that right. went really well. They were just messaging people because there was a reason to be having that conversation, and Rich was genuinely interested in NFTs. And they were able to leverage like that intersectional charisma, and that's good. Other folks have like really good corporate partnership dynamics where it's like you don't even need a crypto industry partner. Some folks love Coca-Cola giving them a ten million dollar match at end of year, and they go, "Hey, if we get crypto donations, will you match those?" And by that I mean you don't have to do anything with crypto, but if we get ten thousand bucks in Bitcoin, can we get ten thousand dollars from this match as well?" And they always say yes." and then you're like, "Can we talk about that?" And usually the partner's like Definitely. And then every crypto news outlet is like Coca-Cola matching Bitcoin donations for the first time this year. And the nonprofit puts a quote out like everyone in crypto sees it and the volume comes in. So you figure out what it is you're good at. Otherwise, it's usually kind of social media growth. If you don't think you have it in your existing base, you have to know if that's true. So an example would be like a church. Let's say you're in the middle of Kansas and you have parishioners that you don't think would overlap with this giving demographic. Should you take crypto? No, unless there's a reason to, like you're trying yeah. to get younger folks in the area to give to you, or you run the backpack drive for the whole state. And you know, someone in Malaysia can click on a link and be like, I want to give a hundred kids backpacks and like, that'll work. That's a good yeah. kind of expansion opportunity. And then the crypto piece is what makes it interesting and gets it in front of people to begin with. That second church, good idea. First church, maybe not. Again, unfortunately, with a lot of my answers, there's no like obvious direct Response, but you figure no, out how you fundraise and if but there's, that, yeah.
0: Right. If I heard you right, Pat, that second church had a program that they were going to do anyway. And they could, if you'll excuse the piggyback, right? They could actually embed the crypto messaging into the program so that they, right? So, so you can also yes. look at it based on your programming as well as come at it from development, as well as from programming?
1: 100%. Like these are all of the best. Again, people think you have to run like crypto fundraisers. One more example on this just quickly is American Cancer Society. One of the best things we've ever done, which is really funny when we talk to American Cancer and other nonprofits, when I talk like fundraising strategy, a lot of the time they're like, thank God we have to, you know, you guys talked about this crypto strategy. We would have never figured this out. I'm always left thinking like, this is just fundraising. I'm just moving the word donation to be crypto donation, you know, I'm just replacing this one component. But we, they were raising like $10 million for cancer research. And I was just like, I was like, take a million dollars for that goal and raise it via crypto and then just call it a thing. And it's like, you're already doing it. The money's going to the same place. It's, it, this is the fund that you're raising, but call this the crypto, you know, the cancer crypto fund. And it's like raising a million dollars and ask companies to sponsor whatever. And then when you hit milestones, just put reports out in the same way you're doing with your other. Amounts of money you're raising. If you raise 100 grand in crypto, be like, "Here's the first 100k in the cancer crypto fund." Put that, and then when you raise the 10 million, when you get the million in crypto, do a crypto specific report out to the people who gave that type, and just put that out on social. And people love that. It was the first, you know, research initiative that million they carved out that was going in separately. It was the first crypto specific, you know, um, I guess fund for, for cancer research, and it was. And they didn't have to create a new fundraising program they just called it they just made space for crypto yes. users yes and then they fundraised according and then they reported on it accordingly too in the same way that like they people don't do that with stocks or crypto where you go back to those donors like here's what crypto has done for organization this year take total raise from your annual report divide it by the amount that was crypto and then replace all the numbers in a set with a bitcoin on the corner and send that thing out and people love that. Like people love just being given space for, for their community and fundraise around. you absolutely don't need to create new fundraiser. So you're 100 percent right, if you have existing programs that work: uh, theater in Hawaii. You know How much are you trying to raise in crypto? 100 grand. How much does it cost to do a play? 90 grand. OK, so just take one of your plays and say it'll be funded strictly using crypto. And then fundraise for all the other things. But the SpongeBob play that's going down in Hawaii is going to be funded strictly using Bitcoin. That's a fun thing to put on Reddit, start posting on social, people will like that. And they did. You know, it's it's very, <laughs> it's what you would expect. If it's interesting, that's great. If you add crypto, it becomes a hell of a lot more interesting, which is another, I guess, fun advantage of it. Where it's like yes. American Cancer, when they announced they take Doge, got like 12,000 retweets or something. It was the best, second best performing social post in the history of the organization because it was a meme at the time. And then, like the whole leadership is like, we got to go on on Doge, and I'm like, hey, relax. Like this is fun, but it, it's yeah, yeah. Anyway, it's interesting. Crypto in general, there's a reason we're talking about it and reason people like it. You don't have to change who you are, but it definitely adds a little bit of uh, zest.
0: I want to wrap with what one of the some of the things that I have learned. I want to ask a question, and because we really don't have much time. Yeah, clearly, we have just had an incident with FTX that has introduced a certain element of distrust in crypto. Um, is it a bigger issue or do we have a bad actor problem?
1: It's a bad actor problem. It's a bigger issue in that, like, the way that that exchange was set up. an issue so this is like when people talk about regulation it's always unfortunate like people in crypto get defensive about the word and then people outside of it try to layer it's it's because people outside of it layer in different things so like they'll be trying to pass a law that like every time you move crypto it's like a taxable event in in the way that and then that just destroys an industry but then there's other things where it's like you should have to if you're holding a bunch of people's money back it one-to-one you know like a trust company just hasn't existed yet for things like crypto and it's like yeah of course so there are some regulatory things that'll get fixed for that we have like a a statement from our company there's reasons we use gemini and a trust company that can't happen to our clients which is good just because it's actually backed but there are things that went down there because of one bad actor in terms of the overall face of the industry yeah people get confused it's like when an exchange gets hacked and crypto gets taken people are like crypto is dangerous because it could be hacked but it's like. No, I mean, it's the same thing. If you leave your password at a bus station for a bank account or for a crypto, like people can take your stuff. That has nothing to do with the tech. So my one concern is people being like, oh, the technology is fundamentally dangerous. Like this is just banking stuff. Like crypto in general, this can't happen because it actually exists. Again, like fractional reserve banking, you're not like loaning it out. It just is where it is. This stuff happens when you're allowed to Say crypto's in one place and then go to a bank and borrow dollars that you can pretend are in two places at the same time. So then you do the the traditional banking stuff around something like crypto, and then it all comes down, people are now going to perceive it as a crypto issue. The the thing around whether or not you should have to back it dollar for dollar is a regulatory issue around the industry. But again, it's all just kind of traditional financial uh stuff. And then us as a company, the main thing we're doing to pivot. On all of this is to focus on crypto positivity as a narrative. We just know it's not a great time to just be like, hey, everyone in crypto, you probably just feel like doing something nice for no reason when everyone's running around with their hair on fire. So we know we talk about a lot of crypto positivity with the, you know, the money that goes to our nonprofits, and the amazing stuff they they put it to use for. And then even use cases like women learning how to code blockchain and then like getting paid in crypto and then they own their own financial accounts for the first time, whereas with traditional finance, they need the male guardian there's all these things that crypto does, decentralized IDs for refugees, so they can actually maintain connection with families. Like the, the tech is fundamentally a force for good. So we're pivoting some of our campaign stuff to do sort of a crypto is good versus one bad actor counter movement, and then yeah. use the spreading of this positivity as a means of fundraising for the nonprofits on our platform. So we're we're taking direct ownership of creating positive crypto stories at a time where there is so much negativity to do our part in offsetting it. But we're you know, a relatively small voice. Well, at, at some point, you kind of got to write it out.
0: Well, and I would say just as we close out here that, first of all, you offhandedly just said a few things that are, were really important about things you can do with crypto that actually have real significant impact. But just seeing if I can tie up a couple of things that you've said, that crypto is not new. It's arguably, if you if I have this right, arguably less risky than some other forms of currency, correct?
1: In a lot of ways, yes. So like for illicit transactions, like am I taking money from criminals? It's like 10 times less likely than when you're taking something like with a, a credit card. Now, when it happens, people freak out more. I usually use the analogy, and my team keeps trying to get me to stop saying this, but of Teslas, when they were rolling out autopilot, when it would like hit someone on a bicycle, and everyone would be like, we have to stop making these. And I'm like, shouldn't we look at like 10,000 driving hours? Because if it's about 100 times less likely than a human driver, then we should be saying the opposite. We should be able to say, someone just got hit on a bicycle, and this is the only type of car that should be allowed on the road, which is a weird dot connection for people to make. You're so much more afraid of incidents with new things just because, again, just fear of the right. unknown, devil, devil you know sort of thing. That's a big
0: piece of it. Right. The other big takeaway is, do you want to diversify your fundraising strategy? Do you want to diversify the people who give you money, at least in terms of age and probably more than that? Are there things you are not doing in your organization today around technology and social media that you ought to be doing that will set you up to do this, right? The big takeaway for me is that there are so many ways in which crypto can make your organization better and stronger on on numerous dimensions not just simply how much money you bring in. And I, I don't think enough nonprofits know or understand that or make that pitch to their risk adverse sports. And I really hope that if you didn't catch all of this the first time, that you listen to it on 1.5 and take some notes for the next time you have a development committee meeting to talk about what would have to be true for us to be really good at crypto fundraising.
1: Yeah. And even, I mean, to even step away from what we do as a company, like what would have to be true for us to keep up slash get ahead in general? Like yes. one reason this is really important too, it, it diversifies your risk. It doesn't just diversify revenue channels. Like for I you know. as an organization, I'm not talking about taking crypto. I'm talking about making the conversation around innovation consistent. People don't spread this out enough. They wait until they have a great idea. They really lean into it with their leadership, or whatever else, they say that you know we're going to go to the moon with this one great idea. And then a lot of stock is getting placed in that for you as an individual, for the people involved in it. And that's like a risky thing. It makes people nervous about navigating it. They usually spend too much time on it. They start ignoring other responsibilities going into this new thing. It becomes like their one exciting thing. I'm not saying people shouldn't do exciting things, but it's way better to just like, we're going to sit down once a week, and we're going to talk with people, bring in other ideas. We're going to move these things around. We'll explore what solutions exist for these, how much it will cost, how much time it'll take, what's the actual upside. And you have a slow, boring, consistent conversation around things that'll make you better fundamentally. And then when you move into one thing or the other, like the risk for you as the individual who presents ideas gets reduced. And then the odds of you moving forward on any of these things becomes a lot higher. You don't want all your eggs in one basket. So even with things like crypto, if you're really fired up about it, insulate yourself and put your organization in a position to be successful by talking about other things. There's all of these other important things we need to do. And you move forward on those things slowly and you find little bits and pieces. The crypto piece becomes one of these many things you're doing. It's essential, it's important, it's what we do as a company. But when you start having this broader, more contextualized conversation around uh, innovation and the impact it'll have, you reduce your risk to bring up an idea and you put people on your team in a position where they can present ideas without them feeling like, if this doesn't work out, you know, I'm kind of on the hook for it.
0: This has been a terrific conversation and about so much more than fundraising crypto, right? It's been really, I have to really think about what I want to call this podcast actually now, because it really has been about innovation and where you want to be down the road and what you need to be doing today and talking about today. And crypto is, has been our vehicle for that discussion today. And I am really grateful to you, Pat, for contextualizing it in that way, for offering people a view of it that I suspect they have not seen before. And and I just wanted to say thanks. Thanks for helping. Like, I know you run a for-profit business. Uh, So do I, by the way. Thanks for what you're doing to fuel this nonprofit sector and for trying to ignite a greater sense of innovation. Both of them are so critically important and I'm really glad we had this conversation.
1: Yeah. Thanks for having the conversation this way. We do a lot of interviews and they don't go like this. I don't take responsibility for this at all. You made this happen. You asked great questions. We talked about things that I think are a lot more macro and interesting. So yeah, thank you too. for being a, an awesome host.
0: Okay. Well, you're, you're welcome. And I hope that our listeners agree. And in the meantime, Uh, Thank you, Pat. And to all of you who are listening, thanks for listening. Thanks for the work you do. And we will uh, see you next time. Take good care. Thanks so much for spending time with me today. I hope you found the conversation valuable as you navigate the messy world of nonprofits. Check out all my other resources at joangary.com. Hope you find them helpful too. Lastly, thank you for the work you do to repair the world in ways large and small. I'll see you next time.